Subcontracting has always come with complicated rules for allowable costs and reporting for small business compliance. Now, some changes are arriving aimed at harmonizing the rules across defense and civilian agencies. Here with the latest, Washington Procurement Attorney Joseph Petrillo. And I guess we should point out that the Small Business Administration did get affected by the partial shutdown. But presumably they'll get open again one of these days and start the work on the harmonizing all of these rules. Right, right. SBA issued this, these proposed rules before the shutdown in December. And comments are due on them in early February, February 4. And hopefully by then they'll be back to work. Uh, we'll see. Uh, and in the meanwhile, what's happening here is that SBA has made a lot of changes to their programs, many of them directed by Congress. And there are implications of those unintended consequences, new problems that have arisen, and they're trying to address a whole raft of them. Uh, but I think, as you point out, the most important ones, the significant ones, deal with various types of subcontracting. And the first type that's affected, uh, it really affects large businesses, not small businesses, and that is running the subcontracting programs and plans that they have to have in place for you know, many large uh, business prime contracts in which they need to try to reach certain goals of subcontracting to small businesses in various subcategories like small disadvantaged, women-owned business, veteran-owned business, etc. Here, the issues are, are two. One is how do you calculate your plan goals? And the issue here relates to commercial item contractors who have a, a particular kind of plan that they adopt across their entire business with a theory that they're making things for lots of folks, not just the federal government. So breaking out the federal sales is, doesn't make any sense. With regard to their subcontracting plan goals, they need to include indirect costs in calculating those goals and establishing those goals. And that's to cure a problem where they already need to report indirect costs in their reports, and the reports weren't necessarily consistent with uh, with the plans, so now that's going to be rectified. So these uh, are the reports that are made by the prime contractor to the government right. about its subcontractors. Exactly. Periodic reports, and the you know, government can monitor from them how well the contractor is doing and meeting its goals. Uh, the, uh, the other issue here is that uh, they need to f- file their reports on time, and failure to do so can be a material breach of the contract. So uh, already, if they fail to make good faith efforts to reach their goals, that's a material breach. But now added to that is not filing your reports on time. So, you know, contractors now, prime contractors now have to be more diligent in their, um, in their compliance efforts and getting things in on time. So in other words... Not only do they have to do it timely, but they also, this is the prime contractors, they have to include indirect costs of the subs in the reports leading to knowledge of compliance with the goals. Right, right. They already need to include those in the reports, but now they have to put them into the process of establishing the goals to make the two consistent. And what are some uh, examples of indirect costs that have to be in there and reported? Well, sure. For instance, if you have a, a manufacturing plant, the cost of running the plant is, is basically an indirect cost. So that, that is an overhead charge on your direct costs of, of actually making the items. That's one example. Uh, uh, if you hire a lawyer to advise you on various things, that's usually also an indirect cost. So, you know, that gives you another example. And indirect costs are allowable 
toward the goal of subcontracting dollars. Is that the implication here? Well, it's not just allowable, but you need to track how much of your indirect costs are going to small businesses in order to comply with both the reporting requirements and now also the plan goal establishments. I guess maybe allocated costs might be a better word for this because all of the indirect costs nevertheless affect what it costs to do business and therefore the prices eventually charged by the sub to the prime. Well, this just underlines one difference between uh, federal government contracting and and other types of uh, uh, business establishments. I mean, every company has financial accounting, but in terms of figuring out one's costs, commercial companies can approach that in a much different way than the highly structured way that it's done in, in federal government contracts. So I'm not sure that there's any intention to bring those commercial companies into the same set of rules that federal government contractors abide by. But here, at least, they need to look at that type of cost and include it in uh, both the plan and the uh, reports. We're speaking with Washington procurement attorney Joseph Petrillo, and you're also writing about something called the ostensible subcontractor rule, That's changing. What is it and what's new there? The ostensible subcontractor rule is one of the two limitations on subcontracting for a small business that receives a set-aside contract. And that can be a a set-aside contract simply because it's small or a set-aside contract that's been restricted to one of a category of small businesses such as veteran-owned small business, service-disabled veteran-owned small business, women-owned small business, etc., In the ostensible subcontractor rule, and that's one of the two rules that apply, the other one is a percentage limitation on the amount of subcontracting. But in the ostensible subcontractor rule, the idea is that even if you meet your percentage limit, if the subcontractor is performing primary and vital portions of the contract, then the contract really isn't being performed as it should be by a company that meets the criteria. And that ostensible subcontractor gets treated as a joint venture. Recently, however, in the last few years, joint venture rules were amended so that if both joint venturers are small, the joint venture is considered to be small. This has created an interesting problem where you have a category subcontract. In other words, a category small business set-aside contract. For instance, you have a prime contract that's set aside for an 8A concern. That 8A concern can then subcontract much of the performance of that set-aside contract to a small business. And it could do that as a joint venture or as a ostensible subcontractor. In either event, under the joint venture rules, that entity is considered small and eligible to perform the contract. SBA wants to close that loophole. If the prime contract is awarded to an 8A concern, it wants that concern to perform much of the contract and not subcontract it out to a different kind of small business. If it does subcontract it out, it needs to go to another 8A concern in terms of the primary and vital requirements. So it's changing the ostensible subcontractor regulations to close that loophole and to make this a topic of potential size protest to SBA. So in other words, SBA wants the government in awarding a contract to a small concern to really have that concern as the one that's doing the business for the most part. Exactly. And and if they are subcontracting important portions of it to do another subcontract that's basically in the same program as the prime contractor. Otherwise, you could have big networks of unlike types of companies just banding together to do work 
regardless of who actually wins the prime contract. Exactly. And if it's set aside for a certain type of contractor, then the idea is we want it to be performed by that type of contractor. Got it. Joe Petrillo is a procurement attorney with Petrillo and Powell. As always, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at iTunes or Podcast One. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffel Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on. And you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com.